Well, it's a pleasure to be back up here to continue preaching the word to you this Sunday. If you look in your bulletin, you're going to find another insert other than the music one that has the outline that we'll be going through, and I'll try to remember to emphasize what it is you need to fill in, make it a little bit more engaging for you. But as we approach Titus today, and coming back to these qualifications of an elder that really are a picture of maturity of the Christian life, I want us to think about, for a moment, the way that our culture is slowly turning inward upon itself, uh, more in the sense of relationship, where people are much worse at having relationships. And one of the reasons that this is, is because more and more, people are driven to spend time alone in their homes, in front of TV screens, in front of phone screens, uh, laptop screens, um, and even even lots of the work that we have um, causes us to have this. We've we've given into it. And so people are alone, and they're not engaging in um, getting to know their neighbors. They're not hanging out with friends like they used to. They're not outside playing. Kids are instead stuck in front of screens and playing video games or watching movies or um, binging Netflix, all of these things. And while there can be good found in these things, they're not bad in themselves, uh, we, as a human sinful heart does, tries to turn those into something of an idol, into a, a way of worshiping uh, false gods and, and, and going after sinful affections that cause us to to retreat within ourselves and and not have to handle those difficult relationships in the world around us. Because let's be honest, having a relationship with other people is difficult. You're going to sin against one another. And we need to have this in mind as this, this idea of privatizing everyone's life and being enclosed in your own space is dangerous, not just for the human person in general, but also especially for Christians. Is Christianity is not a private religion. It's not a private set of beliefs. We are called to live among one another. In fact, Christianity is public from the very get-go. Christ's entire ministry was preaching openly to, to hundreds and thousands of people. And then he called his disciples openly. He sent them out to go into people's communities, into their homes, to call them the repentance and faith. And we see, I want to remind you, if you turn to Matthew 28, of the great commission that Christ called His disciples to and ultimately all Christians to, because Christianity begins with this commission, publicly anyway, we are called... Therefore, in verse 19, Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And this is built upon, if you turn to Acts chapter 1, we see what the point of him giving us this commission is. It's not to sit around at home and hope that somebody comes to us, but rather we go out into the world. Jesus, talking with his disciples in Acts chapter 1, 
He told them in verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and on all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. The Christian has a commission that calls him to get up, to go to the unbelievers, to preach the gospel, to disciple those unbelievers, and not just do it in their own community. It starts with your own community, but it goes further from there. And it goes out into the greater world and even across the globe because this gospel is to be preached everywhere. And is it just to preach gospel, the gospel to people and leave them to their own? No. Now that those who respond positively are to be brought into communities, they're, they're brought, brought to, into assemblies within communities and to create churches. If you turn to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, we get the fullest. We could go to more places, but with all of this hashed out, we, could, we get the fullest philosophy of ministry here from Paul himself. Verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Well, why does he say this? You can turn back to Titus. He says this because once those believers come into an assembly, they need to be guided. They need to be taught. They need to be instructed. And so God raises up the most mature believers and calls them to be under shepherds for his purposes in guiding these Christians to grow in the grace and knowledge of truth. God has an order, a structure for how he wants his church to be. And these Churches become, in a sense, and I've used the term colonization, we really do. We go in and create many colonies within all the nations of the world that are supposed to be a light and salt to the communities around them, to change the community, not by revolution, not by war, not by violence, but by the Word of God, which changes hearts and minds and convinces people of the truth and the power of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this gospel is something that every one of us should desire, not only to know, but to know what, what Christ commands us to do with it, because it is a truth that's entrusted to us, like it was entrusted to Titus and Timothy. We are called to take this truth and go out into the world and then bring those churches together and to, to grow up together in the grace and knowledge, to mature one another. And this is a lifelong endeavor. This, this isn't something that the church does on its own. It's not something you get to check out with throughout the week. You are part of the body. You are part of the church. You are part of this mission. You don't just get to say, hey, my pastors are the ones doing it. I just leave it to them. No, Christ calls every Christian to this. And so whether or not you, you aspire to some sort of leadership in the church, in any sort of ministry, or especially as men, aspiring to the ultimate leadership, which is eldership. You are called to participate in this mission. You are, particip you are called to participate in this colonization mandate. And last week, looking at Titus 1 through 9, Titus 1 through 9 gives us these three essentials of the organization of Christ's church that call you to Christian maturity by those that model it. And we looked at two of those, and this week we're going to look at the last one, which really is in much more detail. And so, let's jump into the text, and we will 
and I will give you that outline. Beginning in verse 5, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you, Titus, would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or rebellious. For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnation, not, not fond of dishonest gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to reprove those who contradict. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that your word would be powerful in the hearts of everyone here as they listen, and we ask that you help everyone to pay attention to your word, Lord, because this is your truth that you desire every one of your people to know to live this out, to model this to the world. You have said that we are salt and light to the world. How can we be that if we hide in our own lives away from the world? Lord, we must seek to put sin to death, to put on righteousness in our lives so that your son can get the glory he deserves in this dark world. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Last, last week, we looked at, in verse 5, the colonization mandate itself, uh, the model colony in verse 6, and this week, verses 7 through 9, the men who colonize. And just to remind you, the reason we called it the colonization mandate is because Paul commanded Titus to set elders or to appoint elders in every city because there were people assembling in many of the cities of Crete. And as we see, this model of, how, of order in the church is meant to be not just in the day that Titus lived, but in every age to come until Christ returns. This is how he orders his church. And in verse 6, when we looked at the model colony, uh, we titled it that because we see the first this first sphere of authority that God instituted, which is the family, what does the family look like for a Christian? What does the family look like for a Christian? Every single individual who is married must be married to one individual. So here we're looking at the model men, the men who, are, who can be qualified for this, and it says the husband of one wife. And we went over that that doesn't mean doesn't necessarily refer to divorce or all these other things, but rather that it refers to sexual purity, uh, both mind and heart, focused upon one individual, or if you're single, focused upon Christ. And in that home, there are faithful children. Uh, they are obedient to the Word of God, even if they haven't professed faith yet, or at least haven't seemed to come to faith yet, Lord... The Lord, um, with a man who is leading his household well, with the wife who is, who is being obedient and who is being washed by the word of her husband and is helping 
with instructing the children, these children will be faithful. They'll come under the teaching of the Word, and they will be held accountable, and you'll see obedience in the life of those children so long as they are under the household. And so now, we move on to the men who colonize, and there's much to be unpacked here. But what you see upon your, uh, the outline that you've been given, we have in verse 7, what these men are not, what these men are, how these men live, how these men contribute. And I'll, and I'll go over those as we go through them. However, in the first two, verses 7 and 8, we're going to be seeing 11 characteristics of these men who colonize. And in the following verses, we're going to see these men display a life devoted to the Word. From that life flows particular giftings of one who is able to teach and refute the enemies of the gospel of Christ. And I want to remind you, as we look at these qualifications, because really, if verse 6 was also a qualification in itself, but had to do with what goes on in the home of the man. These qualifications are for one, are to be looking at one's life after salvation, for one. Two, they're qualitative and not quantitative. In other words, um, we're not looking at how many times a person sinned in a particular way per se, although we want to have wisdom in that. Uh, there are some ways that men can sin that can disqualify them for life, depending on how egregious that sin is. However, it's not necessarily looking at numbers. We're looking at the, the habits of this man's life. What is, what is the consistent pattern of his life? And note, it is also that these, these qualifications are not optional, not for this role of eldership and overseer. And remember, eldership and overseer are the same role, just different titles for the same role. And how we know that these are necessary qualifications, if you look, at least in the, in the Legacy Standard Bible, which, version which I'm reading from, it says the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward. The term there, must, is translating a verb at the beginning of the sentence, that generally means it is necessary. It is necessary. And, it is, and, it, and in other words, it's communicating that all of these qualifications are non-negotiables. And so, as we looked at above reproach last week, really, we could also say blameless, that is the overarching qualification, a picture of the, the individual's life who is qualified for eldership, and it's also what every Christian ought to be striving for in their own life, a blameless life. Men in the Old Testament that were described this way would be Job and Noah. And remember, they were not perfect. There were sins that are, in particular, um, with, with Noah that are recorded for us even in Scripture. However, the pattern of their life was that of blamelessness. And I want you to note as well in this first verse that we're getting into, verse 7, the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward. And why is the word steward used? Well, in the, notice how he's changed from mentioning elders in verse 5 to now mentioning the office as an overseer in verse 7. 
Remember, elder stresses the spiritual maturity of this individual who is qualified for eldership, but overseer stresses the responsibility, the fact that he's overseeing God's household. And so, in overseeing God's household, stewardship is emphasized here. Why? Because an overseer, an elder, is a steward of the church, of God's people. A steward is someone who it's someone who takes care of what someone else has given them. For instance, a manager in charge of a household or a state is often what steward is referred to. Uh, just think, for instance, of uh, an actual like mansion sort of estate. Let's say you're a manager over a mansion of someone who's wealthy, and you have to take care of all of the rooms and how clean they are. You have to oversee all the people that do that. You have to oversee the, the people in the kitchen that make the food. The individuals who do the laundry. You have to oversee then even the gardening and everything that happens there. And let's say this family only stays there six months out of the year. And so you've got to maintain it while they're gone. And then you've got to have to make sure it's ready while they're there. But notice, let's say you don't take very good care of it. And that six months they're gone and they come back. And they see everything's overgrown. Nothing's trimmed. Uh, the, 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 the gate and everything was hard to get into. Uh, even going into the house, they noticed that, the, that things aren't being taken care of. There's dust everywhere. Uh, someone, some of the sheets are, are left all dirty from the last time someone used them. And the kitchen isn't even clean from the last time it's been, been eaten. It almost looks like, I don't know, a zombie apocalypse. You'd think the world is, had... had completely changed and, and no one was around to take care of it. Do you think that the people who hired you to be a manager for that estate would be pleased with you? And every one of us is called to be a steward, but especially elders. Elders are an under-shepherd of Christ. And like Paul pointing out to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 2 through 3, he called himself a steward of the household of God. And in 1 Peter 4.10, we went through that this summer. At 1 Peter 4.10, it says that all Christians are stewards of God's grace that are supplied to you. So are you a faithful steward? Or would you be like the man who left that household unattended? Now, as we look at this first verse, we are now going to see the 11 characteristics of men who colonize, and we need to look at what these men are not first, because that is what is listed first, what are they are not, and Paul here lists five traits absent from these men's character. So, the first is not self-willed, not self-willed. What it means is, and we'll look at the terms themselves without the negation, self-willed means stubborn or arrogant. Critical, um, you have critical judgment with an egocentric attitude. And in fact, that kind of self-willed attitude is 
denounced by Christ, even in the Sermon on the Mount, it said we're not to be, in a sense, judgmental of other people. We know that we're going to be scrutinized in the same way we, we scrutinize other people. And so we have to be careful, although we hold ourselves to God's standard and we hold others to God's standard. And there's a false notion that goes around in our evangelical world that we're not to judge other people. However, we are called to judge, but to judge righteously and to do it with humility. In fact, we couldn't even make decisions in this world if we weren't judging. We must judge. It's a matter of how you judge, not that you judge. But notice, a self-willed individual, Peter, in 2 Peter 2, uses this. You can turn there if you'd like. In 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter, speaking of false teachers in Verse 10, he says, especially those who go after the flesh and its corrupt lust and despise authority, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they blaspheme glorious ones. Here he's describing an unbeliever who is not afraid to blaspheme creatures that God has created that could take him out. It shows uh, unhealthy fearlessness, an unhealthy fearlessness, and it is a trait of false teachers. A prime example might be if you turn to First Samuel chapter 25, First Samuel 25, there's a man that David runs into named Nabal, and Nabal shows this kind of self-willed attitude when he runs into David. It says in verse 2, Now there was a man in Maon whose work was in Carmel, and the man was very great, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it happened that while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel, now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was good in insight and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite, that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was sharing his sheep. And it says that, it goes on to say, that David then takes care of his sheep during this time, does, a, does him a favor, and David's on the run, so he needs food and he needs supplies for his people, and he comes to this man after taking care and giving security to his men essentially for free, and it said, saying, hey, would you please help me out? Because I have helped you out, would you please help me out? And we see in verse, um, near, the, near the end of this chapter, um, well, let's look at verse 10. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take bread and my water and meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? Now, this kind of speaking is, isn't something that we do often in our culture, but the questions that he's, he's asking are demonstrating this kind of self-willed arrogance. Because if you look, for instance, in Judges 9, these same kind of questions are asked 
and they are directly a way of uh, spurning the other person. They're basically saying, well, I know who this is, but I'm going to pretend like I'm not going, I don't know who it is, and I really don't care about them because I'm not going to take care of them. Nabal is a prime example of this, and you notice that later uh, he comes, has to come with t- to terms with the fact that he spurned someone who could actually take him out, and, and through the uh, chapter, he's only saved by his wife, who then eventually becomes the wife of David, because at the end of the chapter, in verses 37 and 38, when he finds out that he almost got taken out by David, he gets extremely fearful and then God smites him ten days later. It's foolish to not have a healthy fear of a godly man, especially in that context. But here, Nabal is a prime example of someone who is self-willed. And the man of God that is seeking eldership is not to be self-willed. The second one is not quick-tempered. Not quick-tempered. This is a unique word related to the word um, and verb for wrath. It is a swelling or uprising of a violent impulse. And really, that kind of violent impulse that, that comes about when you don't get your way, right? When somebody is easily angered. Luke 15, in the parable of the prodigal, we get an example of something like this where, that... Uh, that Jesus gives us in this parable, in Luke 15, there's an example of one of the two sons that goes out, lives a life for himself, comes to terms with his sin, comes back to the father, and the father wants to show great mercy, and he does. Indeed, he throws a party for his son being back, even though he doesn't deserve it. He's showing mercy like God. But the main thrust of this parable comes in verse 25 when it says, now his older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So clearly it should be an occasion for him to join in the the joy and rejoicing of his brother returning as well. And summoning one of the servants, he began inquiring what these things could be. and And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back in safe and sound. But he became angry, this, this second son, and was not wanting to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. He got angry quickly at the moment he thought, my, my father has done this for my brother. This guy was quickly angered over something that going on in his family. And while we don't know whether or not this was a pattern for this other son, we don't want to read too much into a parable, we do see these kind of patterns play out in people's lives. I'm sure you know and you've at least met someone who's quick-tempered. This is a person who's easily angered, not displaying Christ-like character. James chapter 1 in verse 19, excuse me, verses 19 through 20, they say, Know this, my beloved brothers, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Turn back to Titus. Are you quick to be angry when someone says something you don't like? 
when a relative or a loved one doesn't act the way you expect them to. This kind of quick-temperedness only comes from unrealistic expectations. But it is something that we are called to mortify, and it comes from sin. The next attribute is not addicted to wine, not addicted to wine. The Greek word literally, literally means beside wine, beside wine. Someone who is a habitual drinker, often a, a drunkard, someone who spends too much time sitting with their wine. The related concept would be what we went over last time called dissipation. We discussed that last week, but this would be a dissipation more related to alcohol. Maybe not as bad as dissipation, but someone who definitely is always next to their drink. And the opposite of this would be something, someone who is temperate. This is an attribute of a man for eldership that 1 Timothy 3 lists, and temperate is essentially someone who has control over their appetites, control over the, the things that, that they desire and, and want to enjoy of the things that God has given. Proverbs 23, 29 through 35 describes uh, the effects and consequences of someone who drinks too much. And even Isaiah 5, 22 gives a sober warning to those who, tr- who tr- champion themselves at drinking too much. This is, really, this is a picture of someone who is dependent on wine to one degree or another, to, and not just to wine, to any sort of alcohol. But this is, and we need to note, this is not a requirement of abstinence from alcohol. This is not a requirement of abstinence for alcohol. Some may come to that conviction that they ought not drink at all. And that is your own freedom to come to that conclusion and to live that way in your life. However, just as we read in the psalm previous to this, God has created wine for us to enjoy, right? But to a certain degree. Because to allow ourselves to become uncontrolled in any sort of substance, it's not just alcohol, uh, that causes us to fall into sin. And getting drunk in in and of itself, being a drunkard in and of itself is a sin, a sin that must be repented of, a sin that must be covered by the blood of Christ if it is going to be paid for on the day of judgment. Uh, Genesis 9 also provides an example of how a leader who is drinking too much wine, that's Noah, I mentioned Noah before, um, caused even his own son to sin. But it did reveal the heart of his son. Do you have control over your own appetite, especially in regard to alcohol? Do you use your freedom as an excuse to sin, to become drunk? If so, bring that before the Lord. Ask for help from others to be accountable to that. Because your witness, especially, because this is often when you enjoy a drink, will be when you're with others, with fellowship to enjoy food around the table, great times. But if that's you, you need to repent of this kind of overuse of something good that God gives because this can happen not just with alcohol. It can happen with anything good that God gives us that's neutral in and of itself. A Christian must understand that while we have the right and freedom 
and freedom of conscience to do many and, and to enjoy many of the blessings that God has given us. We must not turn them into sin for ourselves or for others. The next one is not pugnacious, not pugnacious. This is a unique word as well, meaning one who, and without the negation, meaning one who is violent or striker. A related verbs means to strike with force. So we're really getting the picture of a bully here, is what we would term in our, in our, in our modern language. It describes someone who lashes out at others in words or actions ready to give blows, especially if struck first. Jesus had to endure someone like this at, at his trial. In John 18, one of the officers of the chief priest came and slapped him when he simply answered the chief priest honestly. One of the churches that I used to attend, there was a, there was a pastor who was later revealed, sadly, to have this trait this pugnaciousness. And notice, this isn't always striking with the hand or the fist, but rather it could be lashing back, lashing back in, in words. This person had a tendency to use their words to lash at others behind closed doors and even manipulate others because it can be, lead, especially if you call yourself a Christian and you struggle with this, it can lead to manipulating others into thinking that you're not sinning. You need to be really careful of that kind of self-deception. The next one is not fond of dishonest gain. Not fond of dishonest gain. This is another rare word that literally means shamelessly greedy. Shamelessly greedy. Someone too eager for money or wealth. This is a person without shame in pursuit or lust for profit or goods. Shame, is a, shame in itself is a healthy response to sin. If you sin in some way, or maybe you find yourself lusting after money for whatever purpose, it is healthy to feel shame over that. And then to go before the Lord, confess that sin so that you can be free from that shame. Shame is much like pain. It happens when we sin and it helps us be aware of our sins so that we might confess it before the Lord. However, notice... The way that this person is described, or this particular um, negative attribute, is someone who is shamelessly greedy. Someone who has been so greedy that they have numbed that shame. This is, becomes part of the habit of their life. Uh, turn to Acts 8. We get somewhat of a picture of this in Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8. First, starting in verse 9, now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astounding the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. So notice, we already get an indication. This guy loves the showbiz. He loves the attention. And they were giving him attention because they had he had for a long time astounded them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed great or signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly astounded 
Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them, and they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon, here we we have our magician again, saw that the Spirit had been bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Is that a right response? And notice, he's not just greedy for money, he's greedy for power, for, for attention. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you suppose that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray earnestly to the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of unrighteousness. But Simon answered and said, pray earnestly to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Notice he doesn't even really seem to be repentant in that. Uh, This is a very dangerous attribute to have, being fond of dishonest gain. Do you desire or pursuit? uh, do Do you have some sort of pursuit that you go after in this world? Something that Jesus describes as passing away? Because everything you go after in this life is passing away. Whenever I see, ever since I've moved here to this area, whenever I see rust, it reminds me of things that are passing away. We're in the Pacific Northwest, there's a lot of rain, and things rust all the time. Use things like that to remind you that any sort of worldly pursuit, whether it be money, power, uh, attention, influence, is not worth your time. The only thing worth your time is to pursue the pursuit of Christ. So we've looked at these five things that these men who colonize are not, and we are going to turn to six things that these men who colonize, what they are. What are, these, what are the attributes of these men who colonize? And verse 8 gives us six essential traits that must be found in men who seek to model this Christian maturity especially if they're going to, to attain to or aspire to an eldership role. And the first is hospitable, hospitable. This word is found here in 1 Timothy 3, like many of these other words, um, and 1 Peter 4, 9. It is an adjective, and the noun form is found in Hebrews 13, 2 and Romans 12, 13, Really has the different. The only difference there would be hospitality versus hospitable, and so you get the same sense of the same the same kind of meaning. And it literally means having affection for strangers. Having affection for strangers. This is someone who loves to express himself in acts of charity towards those who don't merit such affection by virtue of being family or just someone who's familiar in that person's life, like a coworker, somebody you see all the time. So they, you, you, this is an attribute where someone, because of the love of Christ, they show affection 
for strangers who they've never met before, and they, but they want them to see Christ. They want them to know Christ. And they want, they want them to have the goods or whatever it is that they need to live. Proverbs describes, um, Proverbs gives us several descriptions of someone who possesses the wisdom and love of God and in doing so has a love for the poor. And just look at um, a couple of them for me. Proverbs 14, Proverbs 14, 21. Proverbs 14.21 says, He who despises his neighbor sins, but how blessed is he who is gracious to the poor. Another one is 19.17, just a page over. A few pages over, excuse me. 19.17. He who is gracious to the poor man lends to Yahweh, and he will repay him for his bountiful deed. Notice Yahweh takes personally how you treat the poor. And even in, verse, in chapter 21, verse 13, chapter 21, verse 13, he who shuts his ear to the outcry of the poor will himself also call and not be answered. So the Christian is one who seeks to love the poor with the love of Christ. One author puts it like this, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. We really saw that kind of thing, especially with the wicked and the riots of 2020, didn't we? When that kind of heart comes out, you don't care what you do if you're tearing your community apart. The difference with the righteous is that they desire to clean up the community to go out to the poor, and not just with material things, but with spiritual things, but especially the gospel of Christ, because the gospel of God is the power of God unto salvation. I would even encourage you to join us in our Children's Hunger Fund outreach, which is what we do. We are given food to go and give to those who are in need, and the whole point of it, the whole philosophy, is that we cannot give that food until we have proclaimed the gospel. We meet the spiritual need first, and then we meet the material need. Because the spiritual need is far more important. If I were to go out and give out all those food packs to young children without saying a word about the gospel of Christ, I would be loving those people to hell. I would be loving those people to hell. Notice a few things about hospitality, though. Hospitality is not, and this is what it's not, it's not entertaining guests in your home. It's not showing off your home to others or entertaining the wealthy. Hospitality has to do with strangers and often with the poor. A lot is an exa excellent example for us of hospitality in Genesis 19, taking in the angels into his home, not knowing that they were angels, but if you turn to 3 John, which is just to your right in your Bible, 3 John gives us an expression of the opposite, the antithesis of hospitality displayed in a man named Diotrephes. Diotrephes. This is the Apostle John writing to the churches 
He says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not welcome what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will bring to remembrance his deeds, which he does, unjustly disparaging us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, he himself does not welcome the brothers either. He does not welcome the brothers. And he forbids those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Wow, that guy is mean. He's, he's disparaging, in addition, he's disparaging the apostles with wicked words. He's slandering them. So we need to be the opposite of Diotrephes. We need to be someone who's willing to accept not only brothers and sisters in Christ into our home, into our church, but also those who don't yet know Christ to give them the gospel. Number two is loving what is good. Loving what is good. This is another rare word that, ha- that is pretty straightforward meaning. It's just two Greek words put together, mean lover, mean, meaning lover of good. And it describes someone whose affections are aligned with God's goodness, what God defines as good. In Mark 10, 18, Jesus, to the rich young ruler, said that no one is good except God alone. Because the standard of good that we get is from God. And therefore, in order to know whether someone has affections for that which is good, we must know what God's Word says. While these are all traits that can truly only come from a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, this trait in particular is one that is very difficult to counterfeit. Notice this is about the affections of the man, what he desires, what when he is given... And any opportunity to, to go after something, he desires that which is good in every aspect of his life. Those are the affections that the Christian wants and desires above all else. They, you want to nurture those. You want to be drawn towards those. And you have to be in God's word to have a love for what is good. Judas gives us a contrast of this um, in John 12, 4 through 5. And in John 12, 4 through 5 is, is the the incident where Mary is wiping Jesus' feet, and we know this, we know that uh, this takes place shortly after Lazarus is raised from the dead. And you see this beautiful picture of Mary, Lazarus' brother, loving her Savior before he goes to the cross, and Judas has no way of seeing how this could be a good thing. Yet it is a beautiful thing. It is an excellent thing. And because of that, he, he grumbles about the fact that um, this costly perfume is used in that event. Do you have affections for what Christ desires as good and right? Or are you like Judas? Looking at something that is good and right and getting upset about it. Every one of us has to search our own hearts. Do we have the affections that Christ gives his new creatures? Are we cultivating those affections by putting before us God's truth in his word every day, meditating on his word, reading his word, going after and, and, and putting Christ in our mind's eye and seeking him in everything we do? The third here is sensible. Sensible. This is a combination of two Greek words, and 
those two Greek words are mind or thinking and sound, or excuse me, uh, sound or whole. So the first one is sound or whole and mind or thinking. You put those together and you have someone who is of sound mind. Prudent is another way of translating this. And it describes someone who reasons with sound judgment and is in, is in control of one's thoughts and meditations. Once again, this is someone who, has, who reasons with sound judgment and is, is in control of one's thoughts and meditations. This is extremely important. This is an extremely important trait. And this trait is a result of, displaying your, of disciplining yourself, excuse me, toward the renewing of your mind that Romans 12.2 speaks of. Now, Pastor Joey preached on Romans 12 just a few weeks ago. All of us are called to seek after the renewing of the mind in Christ Jesus. Peter in 1 Peter 4.7 says that this discipline is especially important for the purpose of prayer. How are you supposed to focus on what you're praying for? How are you supposed to focus on meditation? If your mind is going all over the place, if, the next, if you constantly are like, squirrel. But you know how you get that sort of mind, the one that goes off track all the time, is by allowing the culture and devices, especially social media is especially a huge culprit in this. It, it trains you and your thoughts and your thinking to have, want something new every few seconds. But what you need to do is be able to have a sustained thinking, one that focuses upon one concept and develops that and, and wants to see how all of God's truth interacts with that concept. And you can only do this over uh, long periods of time of disciplining your mind and your heart. Now, Pastor Joey did an excellent job in the last few weeks before I started preaching of demonstrating some of that discipline of meditating on God's Word. I would encourage you to go back and get the sheet even that he printed out that showed um, and, and gives helps in meditation. In Luke 8.35, uh, the verb of this word is used to describe a man whom Jesus cast out the legion of demons. And this man now, it, it says in the verse, is free from de demonic possession and the word that's related describes him as being in his right mind. So that would be the far end of it. In other words, once we finally freed ourselves from something, um, really a sinner saved by grace, who's now free from the bondage of their sin, and then now you have the ability to dig in and to take from the means of God's grace and to seek the power of the Holy Spirit working within you so that you may start to have a sound mind and seek control over your thoughts and your meditations. Sensible in its varied forms are found five times in Titus chapter 2. And it makes it very clear that this is a trait that is required of every Christian. This may, every single one of these traits that we go through here may be what you should be striving after for sure. But one in particular you need to start with is sensibility, having a sound mind. If you start with that, uh, these other things will come easier because you will be able to 
focus upon Christ. You will be able to meditate upon the Word. And that truth that you are that you're digesting in your soul, that you're allowing to, to marinate your mind, will then have its godly effects upon you. But if everything that you read or hear or you're preached or taught goes in one ear and out the other or stays in for just a minute or two, and then you're immediately distracted by the world, how are those things ever going to change you? Really, you need to ask yourself, do you practice trying to have a sound mind. If you're a true Christian and you've been given that new ability in Christ to go after the Holy Spirit's work in you, to focus upon the Word, to meditate upon the Word, have you practiced prayer? Have you practiced meditation? These things are vital for your growth. Number four is righteous. Righteous. This word is common in the New Testament, and it can be rendered upright, just, fair. And it means living outwardly with high standards of rectitude, a righteous way of living which is observable by others. Your pattern of living that is not only um, being an obedient to God-ordained authorities in the world, but your, in your life it makes it apparent that you're seeking godly justice and righteousness with all the people that you interact with. You want to see righteousness done in your community. This trait is in part the observable fruit of the redeemed sinner, saved by grace through, through faith. You seek to live out the righteousness that you behold in God Himself, 1 John 3, 7. However, Jesus... In Matthew 23, verse 28, warns the Pharisees of their hypocritical, outwardly, uh, outward righteousness. And so he indicates here that this outward righteousness is something that can be counterfeit. There is a counterfeit of this. Is the righteousness that you practice a counterfeit righteousness? Does it come from affections and a love for good? This fruit ultimately flows from a right relationship with God. And that right relationship, you're seeking to please your Savior. And that's described in number five here, holy. Holy. This, this word is describing someone who is devout, pious, pleasing to God according to His word. This is most easily seen in someone who continually seeks to conform and correct himself by going back to God's expectations instead of man's. By going back to God's expectations instead of man's. You are grounded, you are fixed within the Word of God. Whenever you have a question about something, whenever you're not sure if something is right or wrong, you seek to answer that question by going back to God's standard. You don't go around and just ask people, ask men, what, hey, what's your opinion on this? What do you think? You say, help me see where this is at in Scripture. Because I want to be obedient to God. I want to seek God first and foremost. And on top of that, everything that you do know, that you have learned from Christ, that you have learned from God, you are seeking to put into practice, not just before others, but even behind closed doors. Seeking to have a, a relationship with God, what they call your prayer closet, so to speak. An example 
of someone who was turned back to the holiness of God and having this trait. I knew a student in school who first sought the counsel even of just his elder in church on something he was struggling with in his studies. He had so much reading to do that he asked his elder, what do I do about this problem? I can't get it all done. And the elder told him, well, it's okay. You know, just, just uh, skim in your reading. You don't need to read every word. And at first he listened to this man and he started to get convicted as he did it. And later, as he was searching the scriptures, he decided to go and double check on the expectations of his professors and his teachers. And they said, yes, no, we expect you to read every single page. And so he, he chose to rather conform his actions and his convictions according to God's word rather than this man's word. So this elder even pointed him in the wrong direction. And this hopefully isn't the case with us or any other elders that, that you may know. However, it goes to show that men can be wrong no matter how high of a position they've been given in the church. And so we always go back to the Word of God. We always go back to the Word of God. God is what makes the standard, not someone's opinion. Number six is self-control. Self-control. This word means having one's emotions, impulses, and desires under control, an inward discipline that manifests outwardly. In Galatians 5.23 lists this specifically as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is a manifestation of being, of having one's emotional passions under godly restraint. It is also listed by Peter in 1 Peter 1.6. It is in a list of his traits. Let's turn there. 1 Peter 1.6. We were just in uh, oh, excuse me, 2 Peter 1.6. Let me correct that. 2 Peter 1.6. We were in 1 Peter this summer, but this is in 2 Peter, and at the beginning of his letter is an excellent, excellent call to sanctification and holiness. He says, verse 4, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful, in the full knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in whom these things are not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in doing these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Having this trait shows you that you are escaping those lusts that are in the world. Paul, before the governor Felix in Acts 24, 25, taught this trait as consistent with someone who is soberly 
anticipating the final judgment. And it, it even stirred Felix enough that he asked Paul to leave because he was fearful of that final judgment, yet not in a godly way because we have no indication that he repented. If we were to analyze each one of your lives, let's say just for a whole week, would we find the practice of self-control in your life? And notice this this self-control cannot come unless you're seeking to have a sound mind, control over your thoughts. That is a very basic, basic discipline that needs to happen in the Christian life. These things are are weighty, all 11 of these characteristics, and they are required of men who colonize. In other words, men who come into the church and desire to be elders, overseers. Notice three of those together, and not, not the very last one, but three of them together, sensible, righteous, holy, capture the whole of the Christian life. And there's, there's some attributes that are similar to this given to us in Titus chapter 2. Look at starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that, denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Have you repented and trusted in Christ? Are you someone who doesn't know Christ and, doesn't, and is, whose entire life is alien to these kind of things? If so, you need to repent and trust in Christ today. He's the only one who can give you a new heart, who can make you a new creature in Christ and give you a desire to live sensibly, righteously, godly in this present age. Notice it even says in the verses we read that it is his desire to redeem his people from all lawlessness. He desires to do that because he purifies for himself a people for his own possession. That those good works, these fruits that we're talking about, these aren't optional in the Christian life. It doesn't matter if you aspire to eldership or not. These are things you should be pursuing because if you can't pursue these, if you have no ability in, in, in how you are digging into the means of grace within the church and how you are participating in the church, if you have no ability and you see no way of these, these things manifesting in your life, then you need to do a re-examination of your life and ask, have you believed in the true Christ? Or have you believed in a false God, a false Christ that allows you to get away with your sin? Because any one of us are capable of self-deception, of taking a false God that we have created and slapping the name Jesus on there, slapping the name Yahweh, and thinking, yeah, my God is the same God as the God of the Bible, when that's not the case, especially if that God you're worshiping does not have demands upon your life that this book makes. Trust me, these are high demands upon the life of the Christian. But you cannot seek after those high demands if you haven't thrown yourself into the arms of Christ. 
because there is a rest found in him and his yoke is light. This may not sound like his yoke is light, but when you are freed from the bondage of sin, you are now free to pursue all of these, these attributes of grace in your life. It becomes a freeing aspect of your life to pursue godliness and not something that weighs you down if you are in Christ, if you are drinking from that living water daily. This doesn't become a moralism that weighs you down if you know Christ because Christ picks you up. You can live in Christ and Christ will empower you and He will press you forward because you will be, you'll be drinking deeply of the truths that He gives you in His Word and you are going to love it and you are going to be looking for that blessed hope and it will drive you each and every day closer and closer to the beauty of Christ. As we see these, these characteristics, we now turn to the characteristics, from the characteristics, excuse me, to the habits and the giftings of men who colonize, to the habits and giftings of men who colonize. And verse 9 is where we're at now, and it presents how these men live, how these men live and how these men contribute how these men contribute. Let's begin with how these men live, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. The verb here, holding fast, has the sense of to strongly cling or adhere to something or someone. It communicates a devotedness that holds something or someone central in one's life. Turn to Matthew 6.24. Matthew 6.24. Matthew 6.24 is within the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus speaks in Matthew 6.24, saying, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted, there's our word, to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. You can turn back to Titus. You'll notice God created us in a way where we can really hold one thing as central in our lives. Yes, there's going to be many other responsibilities we're given in our life, but there's only one thing you can hold in, as central and, and prioritize in your life. This, this, this makes it clear that we must prioritize Christ. Do you prioritize Christ and His Word above all else? If not, why would you expect any blessing or growth in your life? Are you holding fast to the faithful word? The man of God, the, the truly mature Christian, clings to and prioritizes God's word because it is unchanging. It is, it is trustworthy. It is dependable. And it is the only reliable source of information for life and godliness. And notice, turn to 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3, just a few verses over. Paul, speaking to Timothy in a similar way, says in verse 14, But you continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture 
is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. And you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Thessalonians, as we read earlier, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, it says, And for this very reason, we also thank God without ceasing, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which is also at work in you who believe. You must hold fast to that faithful word, and it is faithful indeed. And it is the only thing that is worth holding fast to and prioritizing as the first and foremost, the most important thing in your life. Paul adds the, the phrase, which is in accordance with the teaching, to emphasize the content of what this mature believer clings to. It isn't just words on a page. The mature Christian drinks abundantly from the means of grace in Christ's church. He sits under the preaching of the Word. He, he goes under the teaching of the Word in Sunday schools and Bible studies. He engages in the discipleship that all of us are called to be part of. And note every single thing that I just mentioned. Sure, you could find those kind of things recorded online in a video. We even make videos here, but not for that purpose. It's often for people who can't make it to the body that day. Rather, all of these things, the preaching of the Word, the teaching and studies, discipleship, need to be done in person. They need to be one-on-one. It needs to have that close relationship that we spoke of earlier so that he will apply sound doctrine to his life and be held accountable that he doesn't just accumulate file cabinet theology. He continually devotes himself to the apostles' teaching as the early Christians modeled in Acts 2.42. And so this holding fast devotion to the word and the grace gifts provided in the body of Christ enable the true Christian to manifest their particular spiritual giftings. For the true men whom God prepares for eldership, there are particular gifts that manifest in their lives. This is evident in the purpose clause that Paul adds in verse 9b, the second half of verse 9. He now tells us how these men contribute. And it says, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and reprove those who contradict. And just, at a, just for a moment, recognize that this, is, this isn't trying to capture every single little thing that the elder does. Clearly, there's personal one-on-one counseling, and we even see that in Acts 20 when Paul writes his letter, or excuse me, speaks directly to the, to the Ephesian elders, and he says, I did not cease from declaring you the whole counsel of God. He went house to house. However, this is giving us, in a sense, the, the essentials of that gifting. Don't, but first, don't miss the expression, we will be able um, so that he will be able, excuse me, he will be able. And there, in that expression, is the word that we get power, ability from. That's intentionally placed here by Paul. And it demonstrates that the grace-fueled ability to express one's gift is grounded in prioritizing God's word and his grace gifts in the church. If you find yourself unable to discern your spiritual gifting, 
How much are you in the Word? How much are you part of the body of Christ? How often are you going to the Bible studies or to the Sunday schools or to the Wednesday studies or to men's study or women's study? If you're not attending those things, if that isn't a priority in your life, why would you expect God to give you the ability to live this out in some sort of gifting, to to show you the gifting that He's given you because you're not going where you can grow? If both of these these things are slim in your life, it's, it's, it's in a sense you're driving without fuel. You're going to be stranded on the side of the spiritual road. You're not going to be able to get anywhere. The mature man in the faith suitable for eldership has two important essential gifts pointed out here that Paul lists. The first is that he is able to exhort in sound doctrine. Exhort in sound doctrine. This means that in his teaching or in addition to his ability to teach, he is able to make a weighty appeal to his audience to urge strongly in both warnings and encouragements. In both warnings and encouragements. Romans 12.8 lists this ability to exhort as a spiritual gift. In 2 Timothy 4.2, let's turn there, just turning really one page over. It says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. This verse lists this ability as one aspect of preaching alongside others. And in 2 Corinthians 5.20, it even says that exhortation must include an evangelistic call. Part of the ministry of reconciliation starts with the call to repent and believe in Christ Jesus as your Savior. And it goes on to express the gospel and its sanctifying power, its power to make you godly and holy. Paul adds the qualifier that this exhortation must be in sound doctrine. The word for sound means healthy or free from error. It is a teaching that is free from or opposed to different doctrines, where we get our word for heterodox. That's in 1 Timothy 6.3 and 1 Timothy 1.3. And it is separate from divisive doctrine or heretical doctrine. 2 Peter 2.1, once again, a fruit of false teaching a fruit of false teachers. So the aspiring man of God ought to be able to teach, preach, and ultimately to exhort in a healthy doctrine free from error. But that's not all that he lists, right? You could be someone who's really good at teaching and preaching, someone who could proclaim the gospel in the public sphere, someone who can just exposit a passage in like nobody's business. But you could also be a coward when it comes to having to deal with someone who's trying to contradict you. Paul lists a second essential gift. He must have the ability also to reprove those who contradict. For those who contradict, describe those who speak against or oppose or refuse someone who is speaking or teaching what is sound in the faith. To reprove means to correct 
the words or actions of someone opposing or contradicting the truth. A gifted man will often be able to do this in a way that convinces someone that they are wrong by bringing to light the truth of God's word, exposing it, setting it forth before them in contrast to the error that they're believing. Often, this is going to be done in a lot of shepherding contexts. It's going to be done helping people who come into your church who are believing falsehoods to help them see, hey, look, you're not aligned with God's word. You, you need to be subject to what you see here. But sometimes this also manifests in from the pulpit. If a common error comes about, if something is prominent in society and it becomes a problem in the church and you see so many people believing the same lie, the same false doctrine, the same error, then it is incumbent upon the elders, the pastors who are there to preach against that error and to correct it and to show people why it is an error and how God's Word teaches contrary to it. In Titus 1.13, the same word is used, just a few verses down. It says, This testimony is true, speaking of Cretans, who are lazy gluttons, evil beasts, liars. For this reason, reprove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith. Cretans and their culture caused particular problems, problems of people who had lives that were marked by lying, by gluttony, and probably many other sinful vices. But Titus didn't get a free pass on it. No matter how uncomfortable it would be to try to correct these guys, how you could just fall for the idea that, hey, I just don't want to cause any trouble here. I want everything to be nice and neat. You know, I just want everybody to get along. That doesn't work. Because if somebody comes in and starts teaching something contrary or even living a contrary way and they don't get called out on it, number one, they're going to think you're okay with it. And number two, that person's going to start accumulating their, their false doctrine or false practice in that church. And then you're going to have a bigger problem on your hands. Because now more and more people will be imitating this person who is way out of line. You need to take care of it right away as soon as it comes into the church. There are examples throughout the New Testament of the apostles correcting error and reproving those who contradict the faith. We just look at, a, um, well, just note a few of them. And Acts 15 was the first council dealing with the first heresy. And the elders and the apostles dealt with that by coming together and noting that what was being taught by those who were called the circumcision party was wrong. And then you can read through Galatians and see how Paul had to go on and not only confront another apostle, Peter himself, over standing with these false teachers for a short time, but he was corrected, but also he had to confront an entire church, the Galatian church, over falling prey to this error. And so, really, Galatians is very polemic. It's, it's correcting. It's, it's very much um, reproving that church. You want an example of it? Read through Galatians, and really, I had a uh, example of this in my own life. Earlier on, there was a time when I was part of a small ministry, and we had um, we were at a Christian 
concert. And we had a little booth, at, and it was supposed to be essentially an evangelical. They, they held to the true, the true teachings of Scripture in kind of a very general way, so you shouldn't be able to get cults in there. But it just so happened that one of the booths that managed to slip in was a cult, a cult that denied the de- deity of Christ. And we had to, we ran into them, and then we had to seek to refute their error and really came, came to the conviction that uh, we needed to go up against these guys in the community because they were trying to um, bring in all sorts of, uh, all sorts of converts to their, their false religion. Now, we don't always go after cults in the community. Some of them are well-established, like Mormons, but we best, it's best that we make sure they never make their way into the church. We leave it up to God to, to smite out the error of those kind of cults within the greater world. As we have broken down this last multifaceted essential that helps you understand how Christ orders his church using more mature men in the faith, have you examined yourself to see how you add up to these? Once again, I said before, yes, you should go after these. You should be seeking after having these kind of attributes in your life if you're seeking eldership. But this is not just for those who seek eldership. This is also a picture of the mature Christian. Every Christian is called to strive for maturity in the faith. Hebrews chapter 5 says, concerning starting in verse 11, concerning him we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern both good and and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith and of faith toward God, of teaching about the washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Every Christian is called to seek after maturity. Are you seeking after maturity? Are you okay with just gliding through the Christian life? Are you okay with just setting it on cruise control? Or are you going to put in the work that God calls you to? What is your character like? What are your habits? Are you devoted to the word? Do you know truth well enough to spot error? If not, repent. Confess of your sins before the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is our merciful high priest. He wants to see all his children grow in the grace and knowledge and wisdom that he supplies. And if you don't know Christ, you cannot be mature. You cannot be mature in the ways that we describe today because you are still enslaved to your sin. And no matter how much outward righteousness you may be able to attain, it won't come naturally because your heart needs to be replaced. You need a new heart. You need to become a new creature in Christ. So turn to Christ today and repent. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you so thankful for this word. 
We pray that you would use your word mightily in the hearts and minds of all these people and help every one of us who are here today to get up and walk out changed by the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we are going to be celebrating the Lord's table together.